ask you to do me a favor this morning. I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to say something in the next moment. I want you to please do not turn around and look at this person. Okay? But I want to wish my beautiful bride a happy 45th wedding anniversary today. Like no one looked at her. I can't believe that. I, I just knew you all were going to look anyway. <laughs> she's, she's a little bit uh, backwards. You don't like everybody looking at her, I guess. But, uh. but I didn't have any trouble looking at her. I noticed her right off in the eighth grade when she uh, first saw her. And uh, it's been a long time ago. But it seems like yesterday. Well, <clears throat> I now want to ask you, to do me another favor. I want you to pull out a hymn book. Should be one there near you. And now that you have that hymn book, and for those of you that are online or watching later on, this is our regular hymnal, the hymnal for worship and celebration by word music. I want you to turn to page 675. 675, a page you'll probably have never turned to ever before. And you will find that page 675 is said to be an index of Scripture appearing with hymn titles. Now you go down the left-hand column till you come to the book of Psalms. The rest of that column is occupied by Scripture references in the book of Psalms, and almost all of the next column is occupied by Scripture verses that come from the Psalms, and notes it notes the hymns where those verses are utilized. Now, I know someone's probably going to count these up, so I could be wrong. I'll just say I may have miscounted, but I believe, if I counted correctly, there are 100 and eight verses listed here. And those verses are referred to in 105 of the hymns that you find in this hymnal. There are 628 hymns altogether. 105 have some reference, quote, a portion of a verse or more from the book of Psalms. Now, I knew that, I knew it was a lot. I didn't know how many. In fact, I tried to find out how, how many hymns, period, contained, uh, information, wording from the Psalms, and, and I, I just couldn't find it. I, I suppose nobody can count. It's probably almost incalculable. That's a word. Hard to count. Now, here's what's really amazing when you think about it. The Psalms were written over 3,000 years ago. And yet they are still an absolute vital part of our worship today in 2020. When you think about that, that's incredible. 
But on the other hand, that's what you would expect from the written word of God. Now, the Old Testament title for the book of Psalms in the Hebrew language means book of praises. Book of praises. True worship and praise begin with and depend upon a personal relationship with God. And that is exactly what we find in the book of Psalms, when you put them all together. The the Psalms are about worship. The Psalms are about the praise of God. They, They have been incorporated into our hymns for centuries. And that doesn't even count the fact that for many, many centuries there were no hymn books. They just sang the Psalms. The breadth and the depth of what we find in the book of Psalms comprising our worship and helping us understand the full scope of our relationship with our Heavenly Father is just immense. It is, well, it is, it's magnificent. Can't duplicate it anywhere else. So the Psalms are about worship, but they're also a record of human discourse that conversation, if you will, between God and man. When David, who wrote most of the Psalms, writes, he writes as a man. He was inspired by the Spirit of God. He wrote without error. But he also poured out what was in his heart. And he communicated on a deep personal level with God. And we sometimes find our ability to converse with God, to communicate with God, to pray with God in a, on a personal level. We sometimes find that difficult because we have some preconceived ideas that we need to get rid of. You see, sometimes we who have been brought up in Christian circles, we we tend to think that that God is so far removed from us and and so holy and and we are so sinful and and so insignificant in comparison to Him that really all we can do is just humble ourselves before Him and we forget about the fact that God wants us to know Him. God wants us to speak to Him. He wants us to be honest with Him. He wants to listen to us, and He wants to be able to console us through the Spirit of God, which indwells us. And that is the deepest possible human experience of a relationship there can be. God Almighty indwelling our very souls. We worship Him. We talk to Him often. We ask Him for what we need. We praise Him for who He is and we thank Him for what He does. There is much in the book of Psalms to learn about our relationship with God. And today we will begin a study that will encompass at least the next seven weeks. And what we're going to do is we're going to take one psalm from each category or type of psalms. 
And for each type of psalm, we're going to take a look at a particular psalm, a selected psalm in that category. And we're going to see what God says to us there. But there are various types of psalms. There are wisdom psalms, royal psalms, lament psalms. You know, lament psalms is when David poured out his fears and poured out his concerns and his worries and uh, his distress to God. And there are more lament psalms, I think, than probably any other psalm. I'm going to tell you something about where we should be in our ability to talk to God about where we're at in our life. Then there's imprecatory psalms, and uh, we'll, we'll discuss that uh, when we get to it. That's a very interesting topic. Thanksgiving psalms, pilgrimage psalms, and enthronement psalms. But today, we're going to begin with a wisdom psalm. And that uh, we don't have to go very far to find one. It's the very first psalm. Psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm. By the way, Psalm 119 is also a wisdom psalm. That's the longest of any of the psalms. Uh, I, I, I don't, can't remember how many verses it has, but it's, it's the longest one you'll find in the whole collection of psalms. And then uh, another one that is uh, a wisdom psalm uh, is, well, I lost my notes on that one. It's here somewhere. I think it's Psalm 37, I believe. But anyway, as we get into these, yeah, it is Psalm 37. Here it is. So Psalm 1, Psalm 37, Psalm 119 are wisdom psalms. But what do we mean by a wisdom psalm? Well, it is a psalm that was written for our instruction. Yes, there's praise of God, but not so much so as there is instruction from God to us. Here before us in Psalm 1. And the instruction we're given here has to do with a choice. Whether we're going to live a godly, righteous life, or we're going to live a life devoid of God and in rebellion to God. And everybody that ever has ever lived has to make that choice. And of course, that choice is made one way or the other in terms of whether or not we trust Christ for our salvation. Whether by faith we believe in Him who died for us, shed His blood for us. And, and when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we choose the righteous path. But, some will say, well, you know, I'm just not going to make my mind up. Uh, I'm going to do it later. I'm going to put it off. And and really, any time you, you do not receive him, you're rejecting him. There, there is no middle ground. And so uh, we're, we're going to look at these two paths here this morning. But most of all, I want you to see this in terms of wisdom. Wise men do what's right. Wisdom is more than just being smart. Wisdom is more than being intelligent. Uh, wisdom is more than having common sense. Wisdom is more than living a practical uh, type of life, which, you know, 
It takes into account all the factors and makes good choices and so forth. Wisdom is more than those things. Wisdom, as we see it in the Bible, always has, and this is always the most important thing about wisdom, it always has a moral element to it. Wisdom is about living a righteous life. It's about doing the right thing. Everything you find written in the book of Proverbs is more than just, you know, being smart. It's about doing what's right. Of course, that's smart too. But more importantly, it's right. So wise men do what's right. And this psalm here, Psalm 1, it shows you a contrast between living a, a life based on doing what's right versus living a life that rejects God and, you know, leaves him out. So, wise men do what's right. Now, I want to identify with you this morning three guidelines that we find here in Psalm 1 that will enable us to understand, in general terms, what we need to do to live a righteous life. So, number one, notice with me that wise men don't walk with the ungodly. Wise men don't walk with the ungodly. Look at verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. So these first things that he says here in this psalm are all negatively presented to us. Do not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. All here in verse 1. So wise men don't walk, and I'm using the term walk here to encompass all of these, you know, the walking, the uh, standing, and the sitting. And it, it just means that there is a separation that we must maintain in our heart, soul, and in our mind from the wisdom of the world. We have to have a biblical mindset. We have to have a biblical world view. We cannot, we cannot allow the world to dictate to us what we think and what we believe. That's what the world is doing every day. And it's becoming more and more bold in its efforts to make sure we make everybody conformed to the world's Opinion, the world's ideas, the world's beliefs, uh, the world's uh, concept of how you should act and what you should do and why. We live in a world where the pressure is just mounting, 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 especially on Christians in this regard. There are, there are efforts in this world today, and, it'll, and it's already started in some places, and uh, I think the most recent one was in Scotland, I think. Where now there, there's efforts to label the Bible as basically offensive. Well, of course it's offensive. Claim that either. it ought to offend sinners. If it doesn't offend sinners, it's not God. But God is a righteous God. All, all, all of us, we are, we are sinners before Him. 
Now, it doesn't mean that I'm supposed to be rude and I'm supposed to walk up and down the street and grab everybody I meet and, and, and grab them by the collar and shake them and say, you sinner, you, you're going to hell. No, I, I'm not. I should not be offensive. I should love people and I should love people and let them know the truth, though. And it is not love when you don't tell someone the truth when they're in danger. And the truth is, you know, I'm not better than anybody else. I'm not better than the sinner walking down the street that doesn't know Jesus Christ. I'm a sinner, too. But I'm a sinner saved by faith. And there is an answer. There is a solution to our problem. You know what? If our problem is sin, we all have hope. If our problem is sin, Jesus took care of that problem. When he shed his blood and died for us. But if our, if our problem is something else, if we do not recognize sin, then we've got a problem. In fact, we've got so many problems, we can't begin to sort them out or deal with them. And that's the state the world is in. Completely trying to, trying to comprehend how to live in this world with a darkened spiritual mind. It's impossible. That's why the actions of so many people in our world today seem so incredible and so unbelievable as we as Christians look at it. And we say, how can they think that? How can they believe that? How can they act this way? How can they live this way? Their minds are darkened until the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ shines in. So, uh, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Now, the word ungodly here literally in the Hebrew means loose. And it means loose from God. It means somebody who just cut themselves loose from all moorings, all ties to God. Have nothing to do with God. Isn't that what the world, more and more we see it today, more and more people are cutting themselves loose from God. And unfortunately, even within the church of Jesus Christ, more and more of God's people are cutting more and more individual ties to God and they're becoming accepting of more and more deviant and sinful behavior. Because they are affected by the pressure of the world system and the satanic influence in this world. He says, don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, the advice of the ungodly here, the principles of the ungodly, the worldview. Don't take their position, their viewpoint, and so on. And then he says, nor stand in the path of sinners. Now, uh, we transform here, we, we transition here from listening to the world to getting in step with the world. You see? When we listen to the ungodly, the next step as we degenerate here, so to speak, morally, is we now get in step with the world. Don't, don't heed the, the counsel uh, don't walk in the counsel, the advice, the, the uh, outlook, the viewpoint of the world, because if you do, the next thing you're going to do is you're going to be standing with them over here. You're going to be, you're going to move from God towards the satanic world system and the God of this world. And then he says, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Now that's when you just have reached that point where you're just immovable. Just kind of sit down with the world. You're, you're no longer, you're no longer 
You're no longer listening. You're no longer moving. You're no longer beginning to get in step with them. But now you're totally in sync with them. You're in lockstep. You, you are, you are stationary, stable in your mind, and it is far, far from what God expects. There's a, there's a moral degeneration to these three actions here. In the Hebrew, they're all perfect in the verb tense. And they indicate a settled state of mind. I mean, you come to, you come to a point in your life as a Christian when you begin to listen to the world. And you begin to harden yourself against the truth. And then it just gets worse. You begin, your, your actions are affected. And you're even more determined to do wrong, whether you think of it that way or not, or whether you justify it in some way or not. And eventually, you are in a position where you're virtually unreachable. Now, obviously, unbelievers are in that situation, but believers are susceptible, even though they're saved by grace, even though their eternal destiny is settled, they're still vulnerable to living a life that is dictated by the world system, that opposes God. And that's not going to be beneficial. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the God. Blessed is the man who doesn't stand in the way of sinners or, or sit in the seat of the scornful. By the way, that word scornful means mouth. It literally in the Hebrew language means a mouth. Somebody who doesn't like anything, anybody, uh, critical of everything, uh, they, they set themselves up as the only judge of everything. And it's a, it's a final attitude that goes with sitting in that seat. It's an attitude that everything is terrible, everything is wrong. And, and nobody, not even, and not even Christians can do anything right from that scornful attitude. Why do you think we come under so much scorn from the people that do not believe? If they accept what we believe, then they have to accept that they are responsible to God. And they're responsible for their actions. They don't want that. Don't walk with the ungodly. <clears throat> I can think of a young man. Well, he's no longer alive, but there was a young man I knew as a child in grade school. And I remember I was, I was in third or fourth grade. I believe it was fourth grade. That I made a public profession of faith at church. Now I, I grew up in a, in a Methodist denomination and the church that I went to, they, they weren't very strong in teaching, uh, about a lot of things. And they, they certainly didn't teach or understand security. It took me a long time to get that straightened out. But, that aside, I believe I was saved at that early age. And this particular young man, this friend of mine, came up to me like in school a day or two later and said, I, I heard you, I don't remember what the, we had all kind of uh, 
different terms in those days. I heard you were converted. That's what I was, I think that's what he said. Uh, that's one way we used to be spoken of. We don't hear it much today. And you know, I lived in a small town, you know, you don't do anything in a small town. Pretty soon everybody in town knows about it, right? So two days later or whatever, he comes up and he likes to congratulate me. And then he says, now, I was converted, you know, when so and so. Well, that's great. Then he just proceeded to go on and live like he was hellbound from there on all the way through high school. And you could, I could just watch him. And, and I'm not saying I was perfect, but, you know, uh, affected like a lot of young people in the sense that I was affected by this world too. Uh, took me a lot of years to kind of get on the right path, but his case, I was in school with him. I went to school with him and I could, I could see that the decision he made. Never, never really showed up in his life. And I can see this degeneration. I didn't know what it was then, but I can look back on it and I can see it. He died uh, a whole back. And I'll just simply say this. Uh, he died, I believe, because of the lifestyle that he lived, and the choices that he made. It's important to understand that God says if you're, you're blessed if you don't do these things. And if you do not heed the word of God, you'll not be blessed. All right, number two, don't walk with the ungodly. Number two, don't wander from the word. Now, this is really saying the same thing, so to speak, that we've already said, but... <clears throat> Here is the antidote, if you will, to all of the worldly temptations and pressures that, that we are up against. Here's the antidote, the Word of God. So we must not wander from the Word of God. Verse 2, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. The first thing that's required is delight in the Word of God, the law of God. That's what it means here, the Word of God in its entirety. To delight in something, to delight in something means that you desire something that is pleasurable to you. Some things just, just delight us. I don't normally watch uh, these uh, shows on TV where they have a game show of some sort and they give away prizes. But uh, I've seen enough of them in the past that I, I'm pretty sure that when they select contestants, you know, what was it, The Price is Right, where they always say, so-and-so, come on down, you know. They already figured out who is the most emotional and excitable person they can lay their hands on. And they get a group of them down there. So whenever one of them wins, they can absolutely go bonkers in front of a national TV audience, you know? Just, just lack like a total, total nut. Jumping around and all excited. And I'm thinking, man, you could give me a new car. You could give me a trip to, the, to Tahiti. You give me a, a, a bucket full of gold. I'm not going to act like that. But you know, that aside, that is a good, that is a good picture, if you will, about 
delighting in something. And our delight should not be in worldly possessions, worldly positions, and worldly acclaim and popularity and, and, and all that goes with it. Our delight should always be in the Word of God. There's where we find our answers. That is what directs our life. Now, if you delight in the Word of God, you say, well, where does this delight come from? Well, it comes from the Holy Spirit. She'll give you a love for the Word of God after you have put your faith in Jesus Christ. But you have got to follow His leading. The Spirit of God gives us the power and the ability to do things, but we have got to align our will with the will of the Holy Spirit, be filled with the Spirit, before we... Where we can actually accomplish those things. So, uh, if you're too lazy to, le- to read the Word, you're, the Holy Spirit's going to have a difficult time producing a delight in your heart and soul for the Word of God. You, you have, there's got to be an element of cooperation there. But if we delight in the Word, there's a next step. He says, but, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He meditates day and night. I don't know anybody that reads the Word of God day and night. That's, that's not going to happen. That's, that's an impossibility, I suppose. But our mind can be on the truth of the Word of God continually. Therefore, when we walk through life and we're bombarded with lies, untruths, when we are sub, when we are sub, subject to the world's viewpoints that we are able to filter out the untruths because our mind always begins to process what we're hearing through the lens or the filter of the Word of God. Now you can't do that if your favorite verse and the only one you've ever memorized is Jesus wept, okay? You know, you're not going to get very far. You've got to continually be taking in truth, thinking, trying to understand it, interpret it, and apply it to your life. How does, how does, what does this mean that I should do? When you leave here today, you should leave here with an attitude of what does these truths that we have talked about this morning, what does that mean in terms of how I should be living my life? Are there anything, are there any things that need to be Adjusted or changed? There's some things I need to back off from. There are some things I need to put into my life. How, how does what I'm learning in the Word of God affect what I'm hearing in the world around me? And by the way, you're not hearing any objective truth. Okay? You just forget about it. I know years ago, 
whether it was true or not, and I doubt if it even was then, but years ago you could turn on the TV and the 6 o'clock news would come on and everybody could sit back and say, well, we're just finding out what's happening in the world. Today, there's very little of that. Today, what we hear is mostly propaganda that wants to define how we think and what we do. And we as Christians need to have a filter. That's the Word of God. But if you do not have your mind in the Word of God, if you're not meditating on the Word of God, by by the way, the word in Hebrew here, meditate, means to repeat it under your breath, to mumble it. It's like, If you've ever been given an assignment at school, you, you go around kind of repeating it. Some of you young people, you probably had a part in a Christmas program at church or something like that. You, you got a little verse you got to remember. And <clears throat> I don't know, when I was a kid, I used to keep repeating it to myself over and over. That's, that's the best way to be something. Just keep repeating. But you don't, you know, you don't want to say it out loud because people think you're kind of nuts. Just go around repeating thing over and over and over. So, you know, you, you kind of repeat it to yourself. Well, that's the idea of meditation in the Word of God, is we're, ju- we're going over the content. We're absorbing the content. We are, we are getting it into our mind. We're getting it fixed. We don't have to, under, we don't have to wonder what it says. We, we have memorized it, so to speak. We have, we have internalized it. And when we're, when we do that, then we don't have to say, so we hear something, when someone says something, someone has an opinion, say, what do you think about it? Oh, I, don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I can find something in the Bible here about it, you know? Well, by that time, the conversation's gone, and your mind's elsewhere, and you've been adversely affected. You've got to be able to handle what you hear because of what you know. So uh, this meditation here, and he meditates in the law of the Lord, that's an imperfect verb in the Hebrew, which means it's an ongoing thing. It's very much like the Greek uh, present tense verb, which is an ongoing process that's taking place, an unfolding process. In Joshua chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, God said virtually the same thing to Joshua as he was ready to, take the people into the promised land. He said, only be strong and and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. But verse 8 is critical. How do you do that? By meditation. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. Mumbling, murmuring, going over it. Shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it, where then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. I may come back to that in a minute, Nick. Right now, let's move on to don't walk with the ungodly, don't wander from the Word. And finally, don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. You see, up till now, He's given us the right path. You do not, do not get off the right path. 
beginning at verse 3, he really contrasts the right path with the wrong path. And he shows you results of the right path and the wrong path. And you make the wrong choice, you don't succeed. You're not prosperous. You waste your life. You make the right choices, your life counts for something. Look at verse 3. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Who's the he here? The wise man. And it's blessed back up in verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks on the council of God and and so on and so on. He shall be like a tree by the rivers of water. Now, the rivers of water here probably indicates plants that are put in the ground. Uh, in, in that uh, area of the world, they might have been uh, fruit-bearing trees or shrubs or whatever. Uh, and they would be irrigation dishes on each side of what was planted. I think we can see it plainly today if you just you just think about driving home from, from church today and you're, you're going down the, the road here and, and you look out in this nice, beautiful field out here. Right in the middle of the field, there's this big bunch of trees. That means there's a pond right there. But around that pond. Water. So... If you want a well-watered life from a spiritual standpoint, immerse yourself in the Word. Meditate on the Word. Delight in the Word. Don't walk in the council of the ungodly. Don't stand with sinners. Don't sit in the seat of the scornful. That puts you in this position. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf shall not wither. And whatever he does shall prosper. Now that's the last word or two from uh, Joshua 1.8, which we'll come back to in a minute. But look at the contrast first. The ungodly are not so. Connect ungodly in verse 4 with the counsel of the ungodly in verse 1. The man who is loose from God, the man who has cut all ties from, man, from God, the, the unwise man, the ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Now, the chaff is, is that part of the wheat or barley which is uh, inedible. That is, when, when that wheat or barley was threshed, and they did it by hand in those days, they would do it in a place where the wind would be blowing, and uh, as they would beat the, the barley... Uh, uh, that they would, would gather up in little clusters and, and, and beat it on against a rock or something. The wind would blow away the lighter chaff and the seed would collect uh, on the rock or on the threshing floor. And so the ungodly are compared to the chaff which is blown away. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the but the way of the ungodly shall perish. So look at the comparison. The tree planted by the rivers of water will bear fruit and he'll be prosperous. The ungodly, by contrast, are like the chaff blown away and they will not stand. That means they will not be able to stand against the judgment. They're going to Perish eternally. So let's talk about success. 
Now, the world's idea of success is I have everything I want that makes me happy. I have all the money and all the possessions and everything I want and all the vehicles and all the homes and the land. And I'm rich. I have it all. I've arrived. That's the world's idea of success. Or the world's idea of success, I, I have reached a pinnacle of uh, my success in my business or uh, I, I have a, a position of power. That's pride. And then, and then the world thinks of success uh, in terms of just, you know, I, I gratify my every fleshly desire. And if I can have those things, that's success. That's what Satan said to Jesus when he tempted him in the wilderness. He said, look, fall down and worship me. Now I'll give you all these things. That's the world's idea of success. That's Satan's definition of success. That's the world's way of looking at it. Have those things and you're successful. I saw somebody... Wearing a t-shirt this week. And on the t-shirt it said, I want to grow my own food, but I can't find any bacon seeds. <laughs> B-A-C-O-N, bacon seeds. That's just, it's just preposterous. You, 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 you gotta be pretty dense to think you can grow bacon, right? Well, that was the point. That was the humor in, the, in it, but. But that's not too far off from the world's ignorant concept of success. It's just as, it's just as far out as thinking all these things that the world says is success is true success. And why is that? Because this world doesn't last forever. The ungodly will not stand in the judgment. The way of the ungodly shall perish. You know, to say, to say I want to grow my own food, but I don't have any bacon seeds is, is preposterous, but it's no more preposterous than saying, I want to have everything I want. I want to possess everything that I want to possess, and I, and I want to satisfy my every fleshly desire, and, and I want to be as powerful and influential and as, as uh, popular as I can be, and then I want to die and go to hell. Well, ain't nobody says that. They'll say the first three things and they stop. But the problem is the first three things lead right straight to hell. It's stupid. It's, it's preposterous. It's, it's ignorant. From a biblical perspective to say, I want everything this world has to offer and then I'm going to go to hell. That's my desire. That's my, that's my definition of success. Well, that's not much of a success. You're going to spend a whole lot more time in hell than you're ever going to spend in this world. No matter what your position is, ask, ask uh, Lazarus' buddy, the rich man, Luke 16, what it was like when he had everything for a while, then he ended up in a place of suffering. I want to take you to a cross-reference. Well, first of all, let's, let's go back to that Joshua reference. Verse 8. The book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. You shall meditate in it day and night. Observe to do according to what is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Well, what's God's definition of success? God's definition of success right here in Psalm 1. Live a righteous life and go to heaven. 
You, you may not be the most popular. You may not be the most powerful. You may not have every uh, woman uh, satisfied and, and all that. But if you choose to do what's right, even if you suffer for doing what's right, <clears throat> that's an indication in the end you're going to be fruitful. And you're not going to perish. Not because of what you do, but because of your faith, which causes you to do what you do. In the end, that's real success. Now, the New Testament confirms this when you go to Matthew chapter 26, excuse me, Matthew chapter 16, verse 26. The words of Jesus. Jesus said, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Well, that's the reality of the world's definition of success right there. And Jesus said, what good's that? And then he says this, or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? No, there's, you'd give it all, wouldn't it? But then it's too late. So true success is not about anything the world offers. It's about putting your faith in Jesus Christ and choosing to glorify Him and live for Him and, and be on the righteous path and have His blessing. The opposite of that is have everything the world offers, reject Christ, reject God, and go to hell for eternity. Those are the two options. Now in conclusion, I want to take you back to verse 1. Blessed is the man. In the Hebrew, it's really more emphatic. In the Hebrew language, it's more like, Oh, the blessings of a man. See, we just read over the word and we don't, we forget. You know, there's that old song we sang so often, count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your many blessings. See what God has done. Boy, we got to do that every day. When you stop to think, stop to think what God's done. You know, we, we spend all of our time complaining about what we wish God would have done for us. You ain't even got room to think about that in your mind if you begin to calculate all the things He has done already for you. Oh, the blessings of the man. Because <clears throat> the blessed man is the man that knows his faith is squarely in Jesus Christ, knows his eternal life is squarely determined. He has absolute assurance of that. And <clears throat> he has God's blessing in his life because he chooses to do the right thing and walk the right path. Then the joy of his salvation, the, the peace that we have with God, begins to overshadow everything and anything the world can possibly offer us. That doesn't mean that we should, shouldn't live in, you know, in a decent house and, and drive a car that actually gets us somewhere. You know, we live in a, in a material world, but those things are of so little significance compared to the eternal. 